Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a new episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Thea Lenarduzzi and sitting in for Stig Abel today is Michael Keynes, fresh from our bonus podcast debate on the importance or not of literary prizes, a commissioning editor with too many specialisms to mention here. Welcome to this small dark studio, Michael Keynes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be standing in for Lee Child, loving, shy and retiring <laughs> oh editor. Oh dear, dear, stop, stop there. Stop we'll there. stop there. We stop don't there. have to go the whole way. <laughs> Would you say that one of your specialisms is the metaphysical poet? I, in a manner. I mean, I, I like the whole debate around them. It's, it's a Johnsonian label, isn't it? And he really, I think he borrows the idea from Dryden. And he uses it to beat poets with of the previous century. He doesn't quite agree with. I, re- I really like that idea that they are they're bound into a club by Johnson. Yeah, well, I'm definitely I'm taking that as a yes. I, t- yes, I you call are. that, that a yes because I do like the poets themselves, but the label itself I like. It sort of tickles me. Okay, well, we do. Um, this is a seamless segue. I think you'll agree. Uh, we have a few new reviews. You see. Um, and so thanks to everyone who, who's left them so far. Uh, Jess Dunmore has given us a fine pastiche of Andrew Marvell's most famous poem, um, which I'm hoping, Michael, you'll oblige us by uh-huh. reading in your finest 17th century tones. OK, well, that's that's my only tone. So <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> whatever time is there, don't wake me up from my time capsule. Uh, this is by Jess Dunmore, then. Had I but world enough and time, this TLS obsession were no crime. I could sit with my cup of tea, my cat, and usually biscuits three. Through the paper I would peruse, full of articles to choose, slowly indulge in each one till the entire paper was done. This podcast, for a thousand years I could listen, and ne'er my ears would grow tired of these debates, for which each week I eagerly await. But at my back I always hear the threat of A-levels hurrying near. Alas, I must return to work and resist such a fabulous podcast. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Jess. Thank you, Michael. I think I think that sort of beats Lucy Dallas. It's uh, limerick, don't tell her. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of it. Coming up on the show this week, what do you think would be the realisation, asked Charles Dickens, of one of my most cherished daydreams? The answer was to hold supreme authority in the direction of a great theatre where the plays and the players would be absolutely under my control. 
Robert Douglas Fairhurst has been leafing through a two-volume collection of Dickensian stage adaptations in which the great writer was, sometimes a little, sometimes much to his chagrin, not at all in command. And are we hardwired to feel other people's pain? And if so, is it necessarily a good thing? Andrew Skull has reviewed three new studies of empathy and will join us to tell us more. Charles Dickens, actor. Charles Dickens, playwright. Not all authors are necessarily great performers of their own work or lovers of strutting about on a stage, but Charles Dickens relished the theatrical side of life all his life, from precociously producing a tragedy at the age of six, to playing the hero of The Frozen Deep by Wilkie Collins in 1857, to the famous series of public readings which began the following year. And Dickens didn't just write about the theatre in his novels, he wrote through the theatre. As Robert Douglas Fairhurst points out in this week's TLS, in a review of two volumes of Dickensian dramas, 19th century adaptations of his work, Dickens's innate theatricality enabled him to write, and the theatre world of the time, in a sense, was to return the compliment. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Let's start with the man himself. How important was the stage and mimicry, performance, imitation to the great inimitable himself? Oh, hugely important. Um, So he attended hundreds of productions. He thought about becoming a a professional actor. Uh, He made friends with William McCready. Um, uh, He loved amateur dramatics. Um, He loved the idea of drilling people like a drill sergeant to make them do his bidding uh, on the stage. Um, And after he abandons uh, the idea of being an actor, he still kept one foot in that world though so uh, his clothes like those brightly coloured waistcoats he loved were a little bit like a costume that he could use to go out into the Mm -hmm. world in Um, he liked catchphrases like Grimaldi the Clowns here we are which was supposedly the first thing he said when he stepped onto American soil for the first time Um, but also he deflected drama into his own uh, fictional writing Uh, so his daughter Mamie Dickens And I talk about this in my review, that she saw him once in the throes of composition. And it was like a kind of one-man show. He he would get up from his writing, he would stare into the mirror, gesticulating and mouthing the words, and and then he would go and scribble things down. So it it was as if he was turning the mirror into a kind of um, page. The page became a kind of stage for him. And his reading performances, his great transatlantic tours, they presumably allowed him to flex those muscles further. Oh, absolutely, yes. And what's interesting is that this is a a side of him which people think they know about because of uh, collections like Philip Collins's edition of the public readings uh, and because critics like Edmund Wilson said that he was the greatest dramatic writer the English had known since Shakespeare, which is, you know, quite a claim. Uh, especially when you look at his own plays, which were pretty thin, the ones he wrote early in his career, pretty thin farces. Um, but yes, it was, it was things like the the public readings, which which really showed how his fiction was. It was dramatic and it was theatrical. It was it was actually quite stagey. Um, you've got characters who seem to be making speeches, not just talking to each other. Uh, you've got um, uh, uh, bits of narrative that drift into a kind of sub-Shakespearean blank verse, 
whenever he reaches moments of extreme pathos, like like the death of Little Nell or the death of Joe in Bleak House, uh, you've got illustrations that look as if uh, the act the, the the characters are actors. They're they're sort of freezing into theatrical tableau. Um, but the reason this edition is so important, I think. Dickensian dramas is it's the first time that anyone has looked really closely at the plays that people wrote in response to his fiction. So you've got his 16 plays, two big volumes, uh, 50 years worth of theatre. Uh, starts in 1837 and goes up to 1887. But also it shows just how closely involved Dickens himself was with the whole enterprise of turning his novels into plays. And what are these um, dramas themselves? I mean, what, what are they like? Is there a consistent uh, attitude portrayed by them? That, did it change greatly over those 50 years? Um, well, it's interesting. They're, they're, they're patchy uh, in terms of quality. Um, I suppose what they remind us of, and this is something they do all have in common, is just how obsessed Dickens himself was with deceit and disguise uh, and secrets coming to light, um, all of which, of course, are very theatrical ideas, and all of which these plays do rummage around in in, in, in interesting ways. Um, where they're not successful is, in fact, where they ignore the way that the page and the stage differ. So where they simply uh, transfer across the narrator's words and put them in the mouths of characters, um, they make the characters sound a bit feeble-minded. May I drastically lower the tone by asking if you both have favourite um, adaptations of Dickens? <laughs> well, actually, if you're thinking about um, more recent adaptations, I mean, for us, of course, it's not theatre, it's film, isn't it? It's in its TV. And the editors um, here point out that there are you know, 64 versions of A Christmas Carol alone, and they say that you know these star the Muppets and the Smurfs and the Flintstones and Barbie uh, and a load of dogs. Um, <laughs> actually, my favourite adaptation, I think the one that is most Dickensian, is The Muppet Christmas Carol. Yes. I think that, the that, arts that, editor that, here that, would is, agree that, with that you. Is, <laughs> that is the adaptation which gets closest to... Dickens's grotesquerie um, and that fine line between comedy and pathos uh, and the fact that the people often aren't like people. Uh, they often seem to be more like um, sort of, I don't know, sort of grotesques in disguise. What do you make of the film, the 1968 film, so it's its 50th anniversary now? It was That was an adaptation itself of the, the Lionel Bart musical from 1960. Have you seen it recently? Uh, of, of Oliver? Yeah, yeah of Oliver. Yes, um, I, I have seen it recently. And in fact, the word on the street is there's going to be a remake of it. Oh, a reverend. I, you heard it here I first. probably shouldn't say more than that. But <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 uh, I think they're still trying to get the money together. But there are uh, moves uh, uh, for a remake, which, which will be interesting. Um, I think Oliver, uh, the film, is, is fascinating because it tries very, very hard to get what Dickens called in that novel the streaky bacon effect of uh, melodrama sort of interrupted by moments of farce and I think it largely succeeds the, the one thing that perhaps doesn't succeed oddly in a musical is the music well and Mark Lester himself who played Oliver uh, I learned recently wasn't even singing his his singing parts were dubbed by uh, the daughter of, of uh, Johnny Green who was doing the music for for the film Yes, and it's interesting they chose someone who couldn't really sing to play the role of the hero, isn't it? Um, and not just Lester, but in fact the voice that they then dubbed onto uh, his rather plaintive, pathetic little uh, face. Um, 
itself isn't a very very strong voice um so so what perhaps one of the odd things about about that film is you've got um you know old stagehand old kind of troopers like ron moody uh who knows absolutely how to hit the back of the stools mm. um mixed up with yes these rather kind of thin rather plaintive voices as if you've got lots of different musicals all kind of fighting for space on the same screen. I wonder that brings us in a way. I'm not trying to raise the tone. I'm resolutely staying low here. <laughs> just, because as you mentioned, this this potential remake, there's something you mentioned in, in your review about people delighting in just having the pleasures of the novels put, put on stage and no surprises. Just repeating things in a way is, is sort of comforting and, and consoling, <laughs> I suppose. And it's why we do see, I suppose, endless cinematic re- remakes and happy restagings of the same place after a given period. I suppose that these Dickensian adaptations trying to deliver the same thrills, as it were, to the audience that they, they'd expect, that they know about from the serialised novels. I think that's right. Um, the reason that the novels appeal first of all to people who wanted to go along to these early stage versions often in fact so early that they were coming out when the novels were only halfway through you know dickens himself often didn't know how he was going to end his novels when these pirated versions were were being put on stage in places like london um but the reason they appeal to people is partly because well it's a matter of fashion because there were strong characters the stories were pulling people along Uh, but also yeah familiarity you would go along and see a stage version of Sam Weller because it was like going visiting an old friend. Uh, you already knew some of his catchphrases, so it's a little bit like watching Little Britain. You know, you chant along to the catchphrases and feel like you're part of a gang, part of the in crowd. In fact, D- Dickens himself says um, mm. uh, in in his preface to Bleak House, he says in that novel, he says, "I've purposely dwelt on the romantic side of familiar things," and I suppose for Dickens that was the appeal of the theatre. It also showed the romantic side of familiar things. I know you mentioned MacReady. I mean, he reviewed MacReady's Lear maybe quite young and then saw pretty much his last performance as Lear. Is that about, about right? So these are plays that you get used to the idea that these are things you live with and that's what Dickens is aspiring to create in his own work. And I suppose the theatre, because the theatre is also a place of, well, for Dickens, a place of magical transformations, uh, pantomime for him was a place, he says, where nothing is but thinking makes it so. And I suppose for the audience as well, it was a way of taking what should be familiar and transforming it into a a new idiom, a new style, um, a new range of expressions. So even the most familiar stories could be made strange. I wonder if there's a case to be made afresh here for the significance of theatrical adaptations in the theatre more generally in literary history. We've recently had Frances Wilson writing in the TLS about Frankenstein and in that she emphasised the vital role of a theatrical adaptation by Richard Brinsley Peake. Is the interplay there healthy? Is it is it important? I think it is. Um, and the reason that it's been disguised for so long which the editors um, of these volumes point out, is that Dickens himself wanted to keep the whole thing at arm's length, even when he was involved. Um, He wants to keep up appearances as a a serious novelist and not just a hack dramatist adapting his own work. But because there were so many real hacks, you know, thieves, opportunists, um, circling around his work and sticking it on the stage... That's when he decided, if you can't beat him, join him. And he became really closely involved in um, uh, theatres like the Lyceum Theatre, which was just down the road from his offices uh, at the Journal all the year round. 
And you know, he would sit on a rehearsals and he would make suggestions. And he was often, he was like a, a silent uh, partner in these productions. And that's why they're so important, because they are a whole new range of material that he had a hand in, which, because he was so successful in disguising his own part in them, we've largely ignored. Thank you very much, Robert Douglas Fairhurst. My pleasure. I, for one, am very pleased to hear that Dickens was such a fan of um, of amateur dramatics because my first theatre experience was uh, seeing my mother play Mrs Sowerbury in, in an Amdram <laughs> production of Oliver. This is a new line in TLS Editor Confession. I was... I can't remember my first... Hamdram production, but I was in The King and I, so I've definitely done that. Oh, but you were in it, you weren't even watching it, you've already yeah. one-upped me. And what, well, no, it's bad that it might as well have been, it was worse than it, it would have been a good, Dickens would have described it, let's just leave it there, Dickens would have described it very well, there was much glaring, there <laughs> it was, was much well tramping reviewed. across the stage. <laughs> no, it wasn't, it wasn't, I hope it wasn't reviewed at all. <laughs> well, in other news, um, this contribution to um, by Robert Douglas Fairhurst is bits, but one of many in a feast of Victoriana, I imagine you, you hate that word, so sorry. What else have we got to look forward to? I'm, I'm delighted by it. It's, uh, this week's issue is um, copious and delights on the Victorian side of things. Not only do we have Dickens and the drama, but we have Thackeray, the journalist and skit writer for Punch. Uh, we have Hopkins and the religious experiences that inform his poetry, Thomas Hardy and uh, architecture. We had Laura Ingalls Wilder, so just slightly outside, obviously, the um, this side of the Atlantic. Laura Ingalls Wilder, and who really uh, wrote some of the more incendiary sides of her books. And we have Victorian photography, to name just a few of the things in it, and that there are things in there too. So it's a delightful feast, just like a kind of mini uh, Crystal Palace in waiting for anyone who <laughs> wants just to step back into the age. But it's there, which Crystal it's Palace there. is not. That's it's there. the crucial difference. It's there. <laughs> Let's hope it's in the news agents coming through your law box, etc. And if that does not make our listeners want to go and pick up a copy, I don't know what will. Roll up, roll up. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
empathy, this notion of being able to put oneself in someone else's shoes to, as Bill Clinton cringingly put it, feel your pain, seems to be attracting a great deal of scrutiny these days among academics as well as the general public. It's generally agreed that an abundance of empathy in a person, or indeed in a society as a whole, is a good thing, while an absence of it, termed an empathy deficit, is considered worrying. In the popular imagination, it's understood to be one of the signs that, along with insincerity, disregard for the facts and a rehearsed kind of charm, might indicate that a person is a psychopath. This does inevitably lead into politics, where voters might voice concern over a lack of empathy in leadership and international relations. Then again, other voters might think said leader is showing too much empathy, a sort of weakness. The ongoing refugee crisis is perhaps a case in point. As the blurb supplied by Barack Obama to accompany one of the books under review this week puts it, if we are going to meet the moral test of our times, then I think we're going to have to talk about the empathy deficit, the ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, to see the world through somebody else's eyes, which, if we can hold off musing on the role of empathy in Obama's own time in office, leads to all sorts of questions. Among them, what is empathy? How can we recognise it? Where does it come from? And is it always for the best? Andrew Skull, Professor of Sociology and Science Studies at the University of California, San Diego, joins us on the line to tell us more. Andrew, hello. Uh, Hello, Thea. Before we wade into all of this, do we need to make a distinction between sympathy and empathy? I know that empathy means, in the Greek at least, in feeling, while sympathy means with feeling. I wondered if it's a matter of degree of involvement. To an extent, I think that's right. But, you know, very often these things overlap and, and get confused with one another. So... In actual usage, I think they they often tend to run together. But these books are really trying to, or at least one or two of them are trying to suggest that simply putting yourself in the other person's place makes a really big difference to how you behave. Paul Bloom argues that that isn't sufficient for the kinds of moral action we'd like to see. The book by Steve Sturman, by contrast, I think makes a great deal about the ability of people to see one another as fellow humans as marking a very important part of the moral evolution of of, um, human beings. A large part of this field now of of the history and study of the emotions, it's, it's very much rooted in this new technology, which you mentioned at the very start of your piece, this new technology being the MRI scan. Why is this idea of being able to map empathy or any emotion for that matter? Why is it such a dangerous one? Well, there's a tendency among some neuroscientists, by no means all, to try to reduce human beings to to machines, I think, and to suggest we're all simply uh, the creatures of the mechanical functions of our brain, and then to look at the images that are created in an important sense we need to understand they are created through uh, measuring what is in fact blood flow in regions of the brain and saying, see, here we can see somebody being angry, here we can see somebody being empathetic, here we can see somebody uh, having uh, romantic feelings towards someone else. But in fact, all we're seeing here are correlations as the brain morphs from one state to another. And the whole scientific basis of this strikes me as, as, as very shaky. We're not actually seeing our innermost thoughts and our character in these, in these scans. These kinds of neuroscientific claims, I think, 
are quite dangerous. Uh, it's not really a very good way of going about understanding human human consciousness. It, it kind of, as I say, reduces us as though we were machines. And it's very odd because these people argue with us and try to persuade us. But in fact, if their claims were right, argument and persuasion would be quite useless. And, and you certainly see that in the Peter Bazalgette book. This very much comes into play, this idea of being able to make general rules about you know, this is what rage looks like, this is what empathy looks like. So they gloss over the individual uh, nuance and, and the content of the thoughts. And then and right. then you tend to sort of, that tends to lead to this idea of internal hardwiring. Hard We're all the same. And, and then yes, gender exactly. comes into it. That we can somehow translate these images into content. And in fact, we, we don't have any way of making that that kind of, of transition. This is not to say that functional MRIs haven't revealed interesting things about the way the brain is put together, but they don't really allow us to penetrate to uh, the nature of, of human thought and human consciousness. And intend they, in, indeed, they, they tend to be used to try to dismiss those as uh, as fictions. And um, Peter, uh, this Basil Jet, um book he's he's an interesting figure because he's probably i mean he's certainly best known actually as as a tv executive a man who who popularized big the big brother tv format so what what is what exactly is his thesis here he's trying to explain i think um how we might uh for example present prevent various horrors he he alludes to um, the activities of people like hitler stalin and mao uh and says well um, these are people who are lacking their empathy instinct or who've lost their empathy instinct. He tries to explain human activities in terms of this instinct that's supposed to drive people either towards positive actions or, or in very strange directions. And the instinct sort of comes and goes at will. So when he wants to explain something uh, he'll say, well, that people switched off their empathy instincts, and that's how they were able to behave in this horrible fashion. So it's it's an attempt to explain the world via um, something he purports to have discovered in these scans. Uh, and it turns out this instinct is um, variably pleasant whenever, whenever he needs it and goes away, whenever he wants it to disappear. Uh, it ends up explaining absolutely nothing. And he thinks it's handed down genetically. Is there is there any truth in that? Not, I mean, but I think we're not able to to tell that. It's just a set of claims about uh, human nature that uh, rests upon what I think is is simply bad science. Andrew, uh, thinking more generally about um, empathy and the idea that empathy is a good thing. Not just thinking about Bazalgette's account, but can we, in fact, trust it to guide our behaviour in the best direction? Well, it is complicated. And I think Paul Bloom, who has this very provocative title of Against Empathy, points out the ways in which we tend to empathise with people like ourselves, uh, people we can readily place ourselves in, in, in their shoes. And that can be quite dangerous because it also licenses a sort of xenophobia against those we don't extend that thing to. But Paul Bloom also makes some other uh, points that I think are quite interesting, the ways in which a uh, 
torturer who can empathize with the victim, that is, put himself or herself in the place of the person being tortured, is able to torture more effectively. And he cites 1984 as an example of that sort of thing. So empathy is something that uh, often has its limits and, like anything else, needs to be put aside alongside other factors when we're deciding how we should behave. On the other hand, and I think this is where Bloom comes around, though we need to temper our emotional responses with some reason, it is important, you know, being able to understand uh, the position of the other is, in fact, a rather important human characteristic, and its absence is potentially extremely uh, un unfortunate. And indeed, Stearman's invention of humanity places a great deal of emphasis, I think, at the end of the day, about uh, on the development of this sense of uh, links to other people, a sense of common humanity, something that he doesn't in any way suggest has developed in a, a linear fashion, but uh, indeed has, has been a key to our living together without violence and xenophobic hostility. Um, but these, these are things Sturman suggests are a cultural creation. They are the result of human reflection, of the development of societies, not something that simply are, is hardwired in the brain. Sort of more to, to use the dread terminology, more a question of, of software, of, of, of cultural layering on top of whatever there is there originally. But th this this Sturman book that you mentioned, The, the Invention of Humanity, because he, he argues, as, as you said, that empathy has been sort of on the rise for, for centuries or, or, you know, legal manifestations of it and, and so on. Is the display of empathy that we see documented in that book, is it part and parcel of, you know, civilised societies realising that they can, in fact, get more beneficial terms, you know, territory, trade deals or whatever, by cultivating a kind of like calculated caring? I think it extends beyond simple calculation, although obviously that plays some part. But one of the things that Sturman points out is how partial always this is and how halting the progress has been and how sometimes it slips back and how limited the, the sense of empathy, very of this, the ability to identify with the, the other. It's a very notion of a barbarian, as somebody sort of beyond the, the pale, plays an important role in his book. But it's not at all a, a simple story that, that he tells, or unlike the very simple uh, position that Bazalgette Bez tries to, to present. Um, it's one that is a very alive to the complexities, I think, of uh, how people uh, have learned to stop uh, treating the other as, as object and begin to see them as fellow humans. And the limits of how that is when he's talking about the Enlightenment, for example, he's very alive to the, way, to the limits of the sense of, of common humanity. On a final note, and with this question of complexity in mind, really, is, is there a risk that technological advances now are, are in a sense, curtailed by a desire to find simple answers, um, rules on which to set theories about how we are and how we should be? I'm wondering, is there an, an impulse to explain and so control our behaviour, um, individual and societal? 
Well, then I'm, I'm sure there is such an impulse. I'm not at all convinced that it will triumph, fortunately. We are attracted to simplicities all the time in this territory, I think. We see that in, the, in these books, uh, one of them very, very simple, the other extremely complex, I think, and as a result, much less accessible. So it's, it's always nice to be able to go back and explain uh, human activity in, in, a, in a couple of quick strokes in, in terms of differences between male and female brains, for example, which is uh, a topic Bazalgette um, moves into and I think makes a real mess of. You can almost imagine, I think, Peter Bazalgette saying something like, you know, the goal we must set ourselves is to find a technology that enables us to switch on empathy in individuals who aren't manifesting it, and then the world will be a better place for our children. Right. No, I think I think there's some of that coming through. Uh, I think that's a, an absolutely fruitless goal. I mean, but it sounds it, it sounds uh, as though it's based on on science, but in fact, it's distorting what science can in fact accomplish here. Well, uh, thank you, Andrew Skull. I think we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time. Bye bye. That is it for this week. Many thanks to Andrew Skull, Robert Douglas Fairhurst and, of course, the Marvellian Michael Keynes. Do pick up or download a copy of the paper this week or visit our website to read us there and subscribe. As well as the pieces we've just discussed, you'll find a fascinating essay by Barbara Ehrenreich on cancer and the troubling double agency of white blood cells, David Badil on humour and Nazi dogs, an account of the rise of the demi-democratic states of southeastern Asia and much more. Next week, I'll be back, as will Stig. For now, though, goodbye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.